AgriPulse Deep Dive is back for a third season. Stay tuned for episodes exploring the depths of farm policy sponsored by Beringer Ingelheim, the National Crop Insurance Services, the American Bankers Association, and the National Association of Conservation Districts. I want to take you behind the AgriPulse curtain. When we started discussing this podcast series, we knew we wanted it to be an informative journey through some of the most critical aspects of modern-day farm policy. We wanted to find the history for why things are the way they are. We wanted our listeners to leave this series better informed about the history and understanding of some of the things that might be hiding in plain sight. And there's no better example of a farm policy subject hiding in plain sight than the Commodity Credit Corporation. For years, it's been the source of both funding and controversy for some of USDA's most hotly debated programs. But where does the account get its funding? What can and can't be done with the money? And just how much money is in the account at any given time? For all the questions the CCC raises, it might be the answer to many of the issues facing Ag Secretary after Ag Secretary, but only if Congress is amenable. So what is the CCC? Let's take a look at the first episode of the third season of AgriPulse Deep Dive on Farm Policy's Unanswered Questions, Capitalizing on Opportunity. If you're looking for a history of the Commodity Credit Corporation, at some point or another, someone's probably going to ask you, have you talked to Ralph? I'm Ralph Linden. I was a uh, staff attorney with the Department of Agriculture right out of law school in 1982. And since 1982 until I retired in 2021, I held various positions as the staff attorney, then a mid-level manager, then a higher level manager, and ultimately I was the associate general counsel for the uh, commodity programs. And, and during that entire tenure, I was uh, involved with the Commodity Credit Corporation issues. A conversation with Ralph is a veritable trip through the USDA history books and a reminder of the fact that CCC was along the way for much of the ride. Linden splits the history of the CCC into essentially three eras. The 15 years after the CCC's founding in 1933, the 50 year period between 1948 and 1998, and 1998 through today an era that he says brought the black box of CCC spending. And yes, I promise we'll get to the black box part, but we should probably go back to the beginning first. The CCC was created by executive order in the New Deal era, the 1930s expansion of government programs by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt to spur the U.S. out of the Great Depression. It was created as a Delaware-based corporation for several reasons. People struggled with what could the federal government do in that era. So they turned to, well, let's create a Delaware corporation because corporations can do basically you know, any type of business out there. It's a little bit of subterfuge. You know, it's kind of like, well, we can't do it directly, so let's try to do it indirectly. So CCC was initially uh, set up to make loans to farmers, including loans to uh, carry out conservation programs. Those conservation programs included the new Soil Conservation Service, which was also started around the same time. For those first few years, the CCC operated as a standalone corporation, 
It wasn't brought into the Department of Agriculture until a 1939 executive order. A few years later, the CCC did what many other corporations did in the 1940s. It got involved in the war. It was the uh, initial uh, procure of all uh, agricultural and, if we would say, war material that was uh, agriculturally based. And at one point, CCC was actually buying uh, seal oil from the South Georgia Islands, which are 800 miles east of the Falkland Islands. You know, give you an idea of how widespread this was. So CCC was a procuring agent for, uh, if you will, the, the Defense Department. While the CCC was searching for a bargain on seal oil, it was also financing farmers, again with an eye on the war effort. The war's end also brought CCC's spending a little closer to home. The account then shifted to congressional mandates and price support loans for various commodities. And, as a fun fact, those loans were made before USDA created its vast infrastructure of county offices, staffed with ASCS, FSA, and other employees working for the various letters of the alphabet that have implemented farm programs over the years. Back then, CCC's loans were administered through local banks or farmer cooperatives. That relationship also brought about a major shift in the funding mechanism for the CCC. Throughout the early days of the war, the CCC was financed through the Reconstruction Finance Corporation. Then, Congress intervened. Congress recognized that these loan programs are more of a revolving fund type issue. You know, loans are made, the back. You don't have any idea of the level of money you're going to need up front. So they gave CCC the ability to borrow money from the Treasury in 1948. That borrowing authority is how the account has been funded ever since. Even after the creation of new initiatives like loan deficiency payments and conservation programs ended the revolving fund aspect of the account, the CCC has kept its borrowing authority with the Treasury. CCC's funding level over the years has varied. At its inception in 1933, the CCC received a congressional appropriation of $3 million. By the time 1939 rolled around, enough capitalization stock was acquired to fund the CCC at $100 million. That capital stock remains in USDA's hands to this day. CCC's borrowing authority gradually increased in the 1940s and 50s before hitting a level of just under $15 billion, where it stayed until the 1970s. Then the stair-stepping began again until the authority hit the $30 billion level in 1987. It has stayed at that number ever since, and by law, Congress annually appropriates an amount identical to the CCC's net losses for the prior fiscal year. Randy Russell runs a Beltway lobbying firm now, but in the 1980s, he was the chief of staff at the Department of Agriculture. And due to the nature of the farm policy of the day and balance sheets across the country, he and his colleagues were keeping close tabs on CCC spending. Farm asset values had dropped about 30%. We had declining exports. Uh, we had ballooning budget deficits. Uh, the Commodity Credit Corporation, we were spending a lot of money on farm programs because back then we had price supports that were above world market prices. So it, we faced a major, major challenge to try to reinvigorate the farm economy, make sure we're competitive, and also try to control the cost of Commodity Credit Corporation. So we were actually bumping up against the borrowing limit simply by operating the current farm programs that we had, not by expanding uh, CCC authorities. That borrowing authority is less of an issue now, but it's still a closely watched figure, depending on the year. 
and many farm groups are lobbying for an increase to the current $30 billion figure, with some going as far as calling for doubling the current borrowing authority to make up for the lost gains of not indexing the fund for inflation in the 1980s. A 2020 estimate from the American Farm Bureau Federation reported the CCC borrowing authority would have been $67.5 billion if it were indexed at the time of the most recent Reagan-era increase. And that was before the inflation of 2021, which would almost certainly send the figure even higher today. But all this talk about borrowing authority and policy changes and this and that leaves out a very important fact to consider. Very few people understand the inner workings of the CCC. Sure, there is technically a board that oversees the account. The Farm Service Agency Administrator serves as its executive director. Very scripted meetings take place on occasion. There's the occasional letter from Capitol Hill with those three magic letters included. But in the grand scheme of government programs, which are typically published in the Federal Register and based on an agency's interpretation of publicly available legislative text, the CCC operates in an opaque way that is all its own. And honestly, quite a few people like it that way. Vicki Hicks worked at USDA during the Clinton administration. She came from Capitol Hill, where she spent time walking the halls of Congress with some of the nation's most nerdy of ag policy nerds. And I say that with affection. Most of the Hill staffers I know cheerfully describe themselves as policy nerds in their field of choice. But when it came to the CCC, Hicks says she quickly realized many of her former colleagues were in the dark. Most of them didn't really understand CCC that much. I mean, it's one of those things that the department doesn't really want people to know CCC that well and the inner workings of it. I'm not going to say it's secretive, but it's, it's, um, it's a great tool to use, and you want to make sure it's being used properly because occasionally someone in Congress will say they needed to rescind the act, and you don't want that to happen because when things hit the fan, the Charter Act is very useful to come in and help save the day. Lyndon takes a similar, albeit more colorful, view. So again, I think, you know, you've got, if CCC's gotten away with a lot of, uh, nobody knows it, nobody understands it. And when you don't understand and know things, you get away with murder. Just so we're clear, that was a joke. I feel compelled to say that because one of the people I talked to for this series joked that the CCC Charter Act gives the Secretary of Agriculture the authority to do everything short of declaring war. And they were only joking a little. The CCC Charter Act isn't all that long, especially considering the impact it has had on farm policy. You can download the whole PDF from the USDA website and read all 12 momentous pages. And that war declaration joke becomes a little less of a joke on every page. The misunderstood nature of the program has offered a lot of flexibility in the funds used to previous USDA officials. And oh, the way those funds have been used. Ask anyone who has a stint at USDA on their resume about the CCC, and you're bound to get a story about the creative ways the fund came into service during their time at the department. Frankly, all the ways the fund was used outside the bounds of farm programs on the books are too numerous to recite in this podcast. But we do need to talk about the caves. Oh, the caves were really fun. Literally, railroad tracks go into the caves in Kansas City, uh, and they took me in in a, like a modified golf cart. There's a connection between caves and the CCC, I promise. USDA's infamous caves have been the source of public lore for decades. The actual use of the facility is probably a lot less fun than the mythical tales of the stacks upon stacks of government cheese that are visible upon entrance. 
probably because calling them the caves makes them sound a lot cooler than calling them a big refrigerator. So how did the caves come up in my conversation with Hicks? I'm over in Moscow, and we are dealing with the Russians because we've been sending a lot of food over for the uh, newly independent states, the NIS. So this was like 1998. A colleague and I went over to try to see if the the food was actually getting um, to the recipients. We're meeting with Mislatorg, which is the import-export part of the Russian government that deals with like meat and dairy. So, and I, I used to speak a little bit of Russian, and I don't remember that much anymore, but I could see there was this consternation going on, and, this, uh, and there were these three women, and then this you know, big Russian man, and I could hear them saying, CCC, CCC, CCC. And so I finally was like, time out, what's going on? And the interpreter said, they want to buy more butter from CCC. They love the butter from CCC. Apparently, the CCC butter was the good stuff. But unfortunately for the Russian women that day, Hicks had to tell them she had already sold the last of the butter she had on hand. The CCC will sometimes end up with commodities for a variety of reasons. Section 5 of the Charter Act spells out the myriad CCC powers available to USDA, including the procurement of commodities other than tobacco to be sold to other government agencies, foreign governments, and for relief efforts in the U.S. and abroad. The CCC can also purchase food to support ag commodity prices. The fund also has the authority to paint the exterior of USDA's Washington headquarters in the college colors of the current ag secretary's alma mater. Okay, I may have made that last one up, but you get the point. The CCC Charter Act grants broad authority to the ag secretary. And sometimes that authority is used in ways that lead to less humorous results than a request for dairy products in another language. Sometimes the fund is functioning as a way to keep farmers afloat. Such was the case for USDA's PIC, or Payment in Kind, program. The 1983 effort could be described in many ways, but a supply management exercise may be the briefest way to go about it. Skyrocketing domestic commodity surpluses due in large part to record harvests in 1981 and 82, coupled with dropping exports, and forced USDA to intervene. Thus, the PIC program was born. Producers would agree to idle some of their cropland in exchange for a payment-in-kind certificate that could be redeemed for commodities already owned by the CCC due to the surpluses. But the legacy of the program is more complicated. Russell was not on staff at USDA at the time the program was announced, but he and many others saw the unintended consequences that resulted. So it really was a no-net-cost program because we already own those assets that the PIC certificates were uh, used for as part of the program. It greatly reduced production. Now, I will readily admit, if you were in the fertilizer business or the ag chemical business or the seed business or the farm equipment business, you weren't very damn happy about a PIC program that significantly reduced production. On top of that, and I can remember having these meetings, we called in uh, the meteorologists from the World Board and there was a lot of discussion about, okay, well, what happens if we run this PIC program and, God forbid, then we have a drought on top of it? And they said we kind of, the program was set up to kind of take into account uh, variations in weather. Well, sure enough, we had, a, uh, we had a drought when the PIC program was run. And I think corn production 
that first year was about 4.3 billion bushels, as I recall, a significant reduction. So not only did we get the reduction in production due to the PIC program, but then on top of it, we had a pretty significant drought, which really reduced supplies. Setting aside how the program might be viewed today, it's important to note the CCC aspect of the discussion. Many could argue, and have argued, that the program was essentially an exercise of the Ag Secretary printing currency. In the 1980s, the surplus commodities were redeemed for PIC program certificates. By the time 1998 rolled around, USDA found itself with another surplus. This time, wheat. And the way the agency dealt with it ended up contributing to a Capitol Hill kerfuffle that still has ramifications today. The passage of the 1996 Farm Bill removed supply management controls on U.S. producers. That, in part, contributed to a surplus of wheat a couple of years later, and the Clinton administration opted to use that wheat to feed needy countries around the world, using existing authority vested in the Ag Secretary. But there was a catch. The surplus removal authority was included in a budget amendment submitted by President Clinton that spelled out the intention to remove the wheat surplus. That's where Congress does or doesn't come into the fold. Critical into that is that in the appropriates bills, nobody ever reads, but there, in the, if you look into the appropriation bills, every appropriation bill since you know, 1950 has a heading called Corporations for USDA. And it says the budget submitted by the corporation is approved except, and there's some exceptions, which are really irrelevant or trivial. So in 1999, if you will, Clinton's budget amendments gone up, was submitted as required by Section 5 of the Charter Act, and Congress approved that activity unknowingly, if you will, in the approach bill because it says the budget submitted have been approved. Again, that language has been there since 1950. It's been there for 48 years, but nobody's really gone to the well of using the broad authority of the Charter Act until 98. The surplus removal came into play a few years later. But first, Hicks has a quick story about that wheat. We ended up with five and a half million metric tons of wheat uh, that did a lot of good. Yeah, some of our trading partners, you know, the Europeans and the Australians weren't so happy with us, um, you know, claiming that we dumped all this wheat. And OMB was asking us, you know, why we felt that we had uh, all these emergencies every year. It was like, well, we have famine every year in the world. We have refugee crises every year in the world. And you can imagine that's a lot of wheat to ship around the world. And we only had one hiccup and that was the boat that went dead in the water between L.A. and uh, Bangladesh that we had to have towed um, all the way to Bangladesh. Two million dollars in CCC funds later, the ship, which was already scheduled to be on its last voyage, made it to Bangladesh. But back to Linden and the surplus removal. A few years after wheat was towed across the Pacific, the U.S. corn industry found itself in the middle of a contamination crisis. Starlink corn was ending up in places it shouldn't, and USDA felt time was of the essence. A budget submission was submitted to Congress. USDA did not wait until the appropriation bill was signed to do the surplus removal activity. You know, it was kind of like, you know, the corn's out there, and this, is, you know, this stuff's going all over the place. You couldn't really wait nine months for the approach bill. So the activity was undertaken prior to the uh, approval by Congress. And as far as, and so most of the activity you saw since 2000, uh, during uh, Bush II, if you will, when CCC was used, there wasn't congressional approval. 
there was the budget was submitted, but you didn't you, you'd, you'd struggle to find that the timeline lines up where the actual appropriation or the Congress actually approved the activity. USDA's early activity under the CCC largely wasn't an issue on Capitol Hill until 2010, when Senate Ag Committee Chair and Arkansas Democrat Blanche Lincoln was in a tough re-election fight. USDA rolled out a $550 million program in September of that year, and the details of the assistance essentially spelled out help to cotton farmers facing flooding and heavy rainfall. And it just so happened many of those producers lived in the South, Arkansas specifically. Capitol Hill Republicans cried foul, and after then-Representative John Bozeman defeated Lincoln at the polls, language was inserted in the fiscal 2012 appropriations bill limiting Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack's ability to use the CCC to support prices or remove surpluses. The handcuffs were on. But it's not like appropriators specifically wrote the name Tom Vilsack in that part of the bill. The restrictions applied to whoever held the office, which, following the election of President Donald Trump in 2016, became former Georgia Governor Sonny Perdue. At the time, many in Congress were wrestling with how to best assist cotton producers addressing the shortcomings of a program in the 2014 Farm Bill. During the Obama administration, Vilsack said his hands were tied on the issue, and Purdue offered a similar assessment. And in appearances to Congress like this 2017 House Ag Appropriations Subcommittee hearing, he made no secrets about his desire to regain the CCC authority once stripped from Vilsack. The problem in the way the um, the omnibus bill wound up in 17, which I was kind of pulling for a better solution, it, it limited my options significantly. While we've changed administrations, I know Secretary Vilsack wrestled with the determination of whether oil seeds, uh, uh, cotton seed could be considered an oil seed or not, and determined that uh, statutory and legally it did not. While we've changed administrations, I'm getting the same uh, legal advice from the general counsel now. I'd love to work with you all in Congress for a, a solution. It's obvious that uh, cotton and possibly dairy did not benefit uh, as well from the 14 Farm Bill as maybe other crops did. And there are some legitimate issues out there that we would love the opportunity to help with. But uh, uh, best I can tell right now, my discretionary authority is extremely limited. Purdue's desire to reclaim the full authority of the CCC led to the fiscal 2018 spending bill no longer including the language that had been instituted to punish Vilsack years earlier. And that change would loom large in the years that would follow, as the Trump administration would spend an unprecedented amount of CCC money in two programs that were largely devoid of congressional input. We'll take a look at those programs right after this. This episode of AgriPulse Deep Dive is brought to you by Beringer Ingelheim. Disease prevention in livestock is necessary to ensure a secure food supply. Beringer Ingelheim is proud to offer the vaccines and innovative treatments trusted by U.S. producers and veterinarians to protect livestock. AgriPulse Deep Dive is brought to you by America's crop insurance industry. The U.S. crop insurance program protects more than 540 million acres of farmland. It remains the cornerstone of the farm safety net and is the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. As we've discussed, creative use of the CCC has been a hallmark of USDA leaders from administration to administration. The fund offers flexibility 
and secretary after secretary has used it. But the Trump administration's use of the CCC brought the fund into the foreign policy spotlight, making it a major part of the president's effort to reshape global trade through the lens of the America First brand of populism that propelled him to the Oval Office. On March 1, 2018, President Donald Trump announced tariffs on imported steel and aluminum from several countries, including China. For U.S. agriculture, that was a problem. To say China was a major player in American agricultural exports would be an understatement. The U.S. soybean industry said one in three rows of American-grown beans were shipped to China at the time. U.S. beef had just gotten the green light to be shipped into the country a year prior, after a lengthy battle with the Chinese government over the 2003 detection of bovine spongiform encephalopathy. For agriculture, there's never really a good time for a trade war. But this was a terrible time to anger one of the sector's largest customers. Purdue was attending the annual Commodity Classic that day, putting him within arm's reach of the leadership for the corn, soybean, wheat, and sorghum grower groups, and a good chunk of the country's agricultural media. He talked to some of us that day, seeking to offer assurance that any impact of the tariffs on American producers would not go unnoticed. We can't be responsible for China's response, but uh, we expect that uh, there could be one, and we need to be prepared in that effort from a uh, mitigation perspective uh, if there are retaliations on agricultural products. Needless to say, China responded. Retaliatory tariffs were placed on a long list of U.S. agricultural products. Exports plummeted, and American producers, many of which were staunch Trump supporters, had a problem. Steve Sensky was USDA's deputy ag secretary at the time, a job he held sandwiched between two tenures as CEO of the American Soybean Association. We started talking uh, to the White House, and the White House was talking to us about what could be done to try to uh, alleviate some of the impacts of that. Um, and so that was when we began exploring, you know, utilizing the authorities of the Commodity Credit Corporation uh, to provide a trade aid package to U.S. agriculture. Once the idea of CCC support was on the table, the administration needed to determine how much support producers could expect. China was a huge market for many commodities, but how did that translate to how farmers and ranchers might be helped by a potential aid package? That's where people like Rob Johansson come in. At the time, Johansson was USDA's chief economist, and he and his colleagues got to work. Effectively, what we did was we looked at, well, you know, it's our position that these tariffs are illegal. In a normal world, we would litigate this at the WTO. We didn't have time to do that in the WTO. Um, it wasn't, you know, functioning in the way that would have allowed us to recover damages from China, and that would have been years down the road anyways. Another aspect of the Trump administration's trade approach was a protest at the World Trade Organization by U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer. The U.S. kept blocking a series of WTO nominees as Lighthizer protested a broader approach from the body than what he felt it was mandated. The Biden administration is still continuing that protest to this day, effectively rendering the WTO appellate system useless. But experience in previous trade spats did inform USDA's economic approach. We used the same method that we would have used, though, had we been going to the WTO to argue this case, um, which is different than some ag economists have, have opined on this situation. And the way that we would have uh, argued this case would have been our 
trade with China pre-illegal retaliation were, was this. Our trade post-illegal retaliation was this. And the difference between those two is the damage. Um, and we, would, we did that for each of those initial uh, commodities, 32 of them, what have you. In order to do that, we needed to have a model that would predict what trade with China would be. Therein lies the problem. USDA had to be predictive with its approach. Johansson and his team came up with a figure of about $12 billion. Once the dollar figure was pinpointed, then came the phase of determining just how to dole out the assistance. We split the commodities into um, two main buckets. One, which was essentially what's happening is these producers of these goods were was losing a market for their product. Um, and we wanted to replace that market or offset the damage from losing that market. So in some cases, that market could have been replaced by USDA purchasing these commodities and then putting them into a food distribution network like food banks, what have you. And that's what we did with a number of commodities that were on that list that were consumable, um, fruits and nuts, for example, and some dairy. And then the other commodities that are lot more difficult to put in to a food bank system. Um, instead of doing the purchase, we did a payment program. The latter of the two buckets Johansson mentioned would go on to be called the Market Facilitation Program. But before USDA could get the specifics out there, someone in the media beat them to it. Okay, we beat them to it. USDA announced the broad contours of the plan in a press call on July 24, 2018. The $12 billion was going to be split three ways a market facilitation program that would offer direct payments to producers of soybeans, sorghum, wheat, corn, cotton, dairy, and hogs. There was also a food purchase and distribution program to buy up surplus commodities for food bank donation. Finally, an agricultural trade promotion program would fund efforts to diversify U.S. ag export markets around the world, ideally to lessen the industry's reliance on the Chinese market. But the plan's specifics were still in the dark until almost a month later, when AgriPulse's Sarah Wyant and Bill Thompson published an August 21st story with two specifics. Soybean growers were in line for payments of $1.65 per bushel. Corn payments were going to be set at one penny. USDA declines to confirm or deny the reporting, and it led to some tense days within the department. At one point, Purdue called Sensky and several USDA undersecretaries and other officials into his office. Down the line he went asking person by person if they were responsible for the leak. You know, and the secretary called everyone together to, uh, I think, really send the message that this is, you know, the, there's a level of trust that's placed on everyone that's working on these issues and that they need to um, respect that trust and, uh, and earn it. I don't include this detail just for the purpose of bragging about a scoop my outlet got five years ago. It's important to note the market-shifting information USDA was getting ready to release. And a sneak peek could also undercut the department in the final days of negotiations with the White House Office of Management and Budget. USDA's announcement came five days after our story was published. And the numbers were ultimately unchanged, much to the chagrin of the nation's corn growers. That penny per bushel put USDA in a bit of a predicament. On one hand, corn growers were an important constituency for the Trump administration, and recent spats over biofuels policy had the federal government and the National Corn Growers Association in some very public disputes. And then there was the fight to confirm Bill Northey as USDA's Undersecretary for Farm Production and Conservation. 
In this case, the Trump administration and NCGA were actually on the same page. They wanted Northey on the job. But Texas Republican Ted Cruz placed a hold on his nomination in the Senate, which prevented Northey from starting his job in Washington via unanimous consent. Cruz was insistent that a White House-level meeting take place over the cost of biofuel mandate compliance credits. Now, the Senate could have used floor time to confirm Northey, but that ultimately never happened. Cruz eventually got his meeting, dropped his hold, and Northey was sworn in for his USDA role on March 6th of 2018 giving him just a few months on the job before the MFP work would begin. Northey was an Iowa farmer, a past state ag secretary, and a former NCGA president. It's not like his cell phone contacts were lacking for people interested in the U.S. corn industry, but USDA's analysis ultimately relied on 2017 data, and negotiations with other officials required the MFP formula not to stray too far from the figures. The challenge is, especially for OMB, but logically too, you have to have a analysis that works. Why are you choosing the price for wheat and corn and soybeans? What is it? And we had dates that we were working with. What did the market do between these two dates? Actually, in that case, I guess with trade, we had some analysis by Rob and the Office of the Chief Economist that said, who's impacted? And at that time, we had almost no corn exports to China. And we had, you know, beans were heavily dependent. And so the model showed a huge impact to soybeans and almost no impact to corn. Johansson also noted other factors USDA brought up in its defense of the modeling it used to determine payment rates. First, that we wanted to base it on a methodology that was reflected in previous experience with the WTO litigation. This method had been used previously at the WTO and by other countries as well, not just the United States. So using this sort of gap analysis, if you will, was understood and would have been used by the U.S. had we gone to Geneva at some later date. The other argument that we made uh, which I think is equally compelling, if not more, is that because there was 32 commodities that were being affected, to do some sort of cross-commodity trade effects or cross-commodity supply effects for one, e.g. corn soybeans, corn soybeans wheat, would have been inconsistent with how we treated the fruit and nuts or some of the other commodities like the livestock sector commodities. There were models that were available whether it be FAPRI's model or other USDA models that would have allowed us to look at some cross-commodity effects, but there was no model that would have allowed us to do all the commodities in a consistent fashion, which we were able to do with this trade model. The MFP funding came with a catch. USDA was only releasing half of it right away. Whether or not a second tranche of funding would be delivered would be determined that December. In the meantime, Trump and his deputies were going to try to negotiate a better deal with the Chinese. If a deal could be inked in those few months, the ad hoc assistance might not be needed. But as fall progressed, it looked more and more like that resolution wasn't going to happen, at least not in 2018. Ken Barbick was USDA's Assistant Secretary for Congressional Relations at the time, making him a liaison of sorts between USDA and Capitol Hill. As December approached, there was no shortage of congressional input on whether or not the second round of payments should be sent to farm country. But Barbick's role also included interaction with legislative relations offices in other departments of the federal government, 
which gave him a look at some of the internal administrative debate as well. You had also a significant debate going on within the, within the administration with OMB, uh, you know, certain folks, you know, at the White House who felt like, yeah, this isn't necessary to do a second tranche. Um, there was always back and forth with the, you know, with the folks at OMB on, you know, how much or whether to do more. You know, to his credit, the president always said, "This is the number I authorize, and that's what we're gonna, that's what we're gonna do." So there was never, there was never really any doubt that there was going to be a fulfillment of those things because of the direction that the president had given. But there was always quite a bit of back and forth with uh, the budget budget folks. But on December 17th of 2018, the second tranche was announced. The news came, as much of the news came in those years, from President Trump's Twitter account. He hailed the news as protection for U.S. farmers from unjustified trade retaliation by foreign nations. But the second round of funding also did something else. It bought the administration more time. Ted McKinney was USDA's trade undersecretary at the time and was involved in some of the negotiations. He says knowing there was something to soften the blow in farm country allowed the American team not to be in a rush. Enormous cushion because um, the, the opposition uh, is very, very good. Probably the most skilled I've ever seen at understanding the dynamics. Where's the points of leverage? Where's the pinch points? Where do they have an opportunity? And as long as they knew that tariffs that they were having to pay and I know there was some unpop, they were, you know, it was unpopular in many cases, but the tariffs that they and others were paying was covering the backside of farmers and some of the processors was simply enormous. McKinney makes an argument that Trump and others in the administration did at the time, that the CCC money for the MFP payments was in fact being funded by the tariffs assessed on China and other countries. Today, that argument can be better informed by hard tariff and CCC expenditure data. At the time, it was more of an estimate. I think people would have to put themselves in the position of the president where he's saying, what's the outflow and what's the inflow? And if, if in his, his calculus, I'm guessing, was there's some balance there. It may not be perfect, but at least there's an offset. It's not just a full, complete drain on the U.S. Treasury to do that. Nevertheless, the full 2018 MFP program was utilized and USDA was quick to instruct producers not to count on similar support in 2019. The argument from Purdue and others was simple. The 2018 damage occurred after producers had already made their planting decisions. They had no control over those crops losing value after being planted. But the 2019 planting season was another story. Producers knew the lay of the land. Negotiations were ongoing, and the impacts on commodity markets were evident. Purdue was vocal about his plans not to pursue another program for months, including this comment to reporters at the 2019 Commodity Classic. Farmers will make their decisions this year based on current uh, signals they're getting from the marketplace and what they believe is in their best interest, uh, and that's the way they've always done it. They'll continue to do that this year. USDA was also taking that message to Capitol Hill. And it was shortly after one such meeting with lawmakers that Barbic got caught in a communications breakdown of sorts. I found out that 2.0 was going to happen coming back from a meeting on Capitol Hill. I remember I was uh, riding back with another senior official from USDA. We had been meeting with some members of Congress who were asking specific questions about a second round. This would have been, I think, early May 2019. 
And we told those members of Congress that were asking that, you know, essentially what I just said, that the secretary wasn't intending to move forward with, a, with, with additional payments at this time. And, you know, the, the first round was, you know, kind of it. And we were on the way back from Capitol Hill from that meeting. And the president tweeted that a, another round had been, he was authorizing another round. And that's how I found out we were doing another round. So despite months of claiming no 2019 program was going to happen, USDA got to work. But the goal of not influencing planting decisions would be much more difficult now. It was early May. Many producers would still be planting for another month. That reality weighed on the mind of economists and political staffers. And the last thing we wanted to do was to create an incentive to plant one crop over another. And so it would have been very easy to say, um, you know, soybean impact is $40 an acre and corn impact is $10 an acre. We're going to pay that. You would have a whole lot of folks saying, I'm going to plant more soybeans because I get $40 an acre versus 10 And so we had to figure out, okay, if that's really the base numbers behind here, let's, let's figure out a county payment rate that is an average of that for what's grown in that county. So that meant that we could tell producers, if you're in this county, don't change your planning patterns. You're just going to get a payment based on your county rate, regardless of whatever you plant. So just plant for the market or whatever you think is the best for your operation. And that sort of got us away from the cross-commodity critique that we had last time. Um, at the same time, as it, it, it did bring up some other problematic issues that we had to deal with other ways. But ultimately, the producers then... Um, at least as much as we could avoid distorting the market, we're just planning like they normally would have because it, it didn't affect what the price, what payment they would have gotten. Corn beans, triticale or wheat or cranby or rye or what have you. The other change that we made was instead of just looking at 2017 trade, um, which is one, kind of when we started looking at the as a baseline period for comparing the damages, we looked at the past 10 years' history of trade with, that, with China and just picked the biggest year, for example. But switching the methodology from a production to acreage basis also meant local farm service agency offices would need to implement a new program rather than a repeat of the 2018 package. Richard Fordyce was the FSA administrator at the time, and he says in this case, and in many others during his tenure, that caused issues from USDA's headquarters all the way through its smallest outposts. Honestly, software was was in a lot of cases the the hindrance, either of a, an easier sign-up, an easier administrative component, and timing, right? We were outpacing, and you had to have major components of the, of the policy, you know, before you could start the design of the software. USDA ultimately notified producers of its change in methodology in May, before rolling out the county payments, which ranged between $15 and $150 in July. Payments were going to be distributed over the following months. Now, remember that conversation we had a little while ago about Capitol Hill and Blanche Lincoln and CCC authority and whatnot? This is where it comes back up. For a brief moment in time during the fall of 2019, some congressional leaders, namely former House Appropriations Committee Chair and New York Democrat Nita Lowy, 
were kicking around the idea of denying a Trump administration request to replenish the CCC and keep it from hitting its $30 billion borrowing limit. There's a number of technical terms like anomaly requests and continuing resolutions that we probably don't have time to fully cover, but long story short, Capitol Hill Republicans and the Trump administration were concerned the action could threaten MFP payments. The issue was quickly resolved, but it led to this heated back and forth between Mike Conaway, the top Republican on House Ag at the time, and then committee chair Colin Peterson. You guys put it in place, not us. That was Peterson's argument, pointing back to the Vilsack-era CCC restrictions that had since been waived. Conaway argued the situations were not equal. Now, my colleagues on the other side of the aisle might say that this has been uh, done before, the restrictions placed on you on this funding as a result of uh, the Blanche Lincoln and, and Vilsack efforts affected future promises, not the current promises that were made at that point in time. These promises on the MFB payments, the disaster relief have been made. And for us to, to threaten rural America that those payments would not go out under regular order is terrible. It was a public display of leadership disagreement that was not typical for the House Ag Committee. Conaway and Peterson certainly had their disagreements, But aside from the spats of the 2018 Farm Bill, the two men rarely let them spill out into an open hearing process. But the two both came to a similar conclusion about the future of the CCC. From now on, this process will now be a weapon that both sides can use if they think it's to their advantage. And shame on us for being to do that. There weren't a handful of members that understood what the CCC was before this all started. You know, and and that's not just this latest dust-up. You know, the president using this fund for farmers has elevated this thing. And so now I've had people talk to me from the liberal side, you know, complaining about it. They never knew there was a CCC, never knew how it operated. And then yesterday, the Freedom Caucus, they're starting to weigh into this thing. So that's what I'm concerned about. A bit of foreshadowing there, but we'll get into that later. AgriPulse Deep Dive is brought to you by the American Bankers Association. Farmers and ranchers, urge your lawmakers to support the ACRE Act and strengthen rural America. Visit secureamericanopportunity.com acre to learn more and take action. AgriPulse Deep Dive is brought to you by the National Association of Conservation Districts. Are you looking to get conservation practices implemented on your land or in your community? Local conservation districts can find funding opportunities to support your conservation goals and needs. Let the National Association of Conservation Districts connect you with your conservation districts today at nacdnet.org. Fast forward to early 2020, and things on the U.S.-China front are actually looking up. President Trump signed the so-called Phase 1 trade deal with China in January putting pen to paper on a deal to boost purchases of U.S. agricultural goods and reform China's opaque processes on everything from biotechnology traits to packing plant authorizations. After two years, a return to normalcy was on the horizon. There was briefly talk of a 2020 round of MFP payments to help American producers weather the timeline of the implementation of the Phase 1 deal with China, as well as the terms of the new U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, another Trump administration initiative to update the former North American Free Trade Agreement between the same three countries. Trump himself even tweeted in February of that year that if additional aid was needed until the trade deals fully kicked in, that aid would be provided by the federal government. But little did anyone know, another aid package was just months away. 
and for an entirely different reason. A strange virus was circulating in China toward the end of 2019, confounding doctors that were unsure how to treat the mysterious symptoms before many patients started to succumb to it. The disease was detected on American shores on January 20th, and within 12 weeks, the United States had the most recorded deaths from the COVID-19 virus in the world. In March of that year, vast segments of the American economy ground to a halt, and many areas implemented directives to leave home only for essential needs in a bid to contain the spread of the virus. But with each new precaution, the virus seemed to spread further and faster, and the U.S. government struggled to address the unprecedented challenge. Capitol Hill passed a massive aid package hoping to infuse more money into the economy and soften the blow for businesses with free-falling revenues. And agriculture? Was front and center. Producers of dairy products, fruits, vegetables, meat, and other staples with food service contracts struggled to shift their bulk quantity items to more grocery store friendly packaging. The situation presented an unheard of dichotomy for American agriculture. People were hungry, and in many cases, producers had food they couldn't sell. Products dumped down the drain or tilled into the ground for lack of a buyer to process it. Packing plants shuddered as the virus ripped through a workforce unable to socially distance. Biofuel demand plummeted as most of the nation's vehicle fleet was parked rather than running daily errands and driving to and from work. Many producers tried to shift to a direct-to-consumer model, and some were successful. But by and large, the industry was struggling like never before. What followed was a slightly more coordinated use of the CCC between Capitol Hill and the Trump administration. Congress passed the CARES Act, a $2 trillion relief package to help the U.S. economy and citizenry weather the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Included in the bill was a $14 billion boost to the CCC and a $9.5 billion earmark for livestock and specialty crop producers. In response, USDA rolled out the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program, or CFAP, a $19 billion package with $16 billion in direct payments to affected producers and $3 billion in commodity purchases. So, once again, Joe Hansen and other USDA economists got to work. We were directed by Congress to look at a couple sp specific sectors like restaurants, for example, but ultimately it was across the whole ag sector because everybody was being impacted by the shutdown. We thought about um, starting with a program that was more uh, akin to, to MFP, setting a baseline, modeling out what this demand shock was going to cause, and then coming up with that gap and then spreading it across the commodities that were affected. But uh, the secretary at, you know, wanted us to uh, approach this from um, a more a granular approach, which was look at commodities whose price have fallen by more than 5%, and that's who will qualify for this program. As USDA was crunching the numbers, Northy had another overarching desire, simplicity. When I first got there, we were working on WIP, and WIP we tried to make really precise, and it became really complicated and hard to deliver, um, and it surely helped some people, but it really wasn't the easiest program. And so when... MFP came along, we said, we've got to be simpler. It's going to be less precise, but it's got to be simpler. It's got to be easier. It's got to be understood. I think we made some real improvements over, over WIP in an MFP, and then we said a CFAP has to even take that one better. I, as a farmer, I thought I would love for somebody to be driving in their pickup on the way home, 
hear the news, hear you share that something's happening, talk about, you know, what a grain, you know, what a price per bushel is or a price per acre is, and be able to do the math before they got home and know whether they could pay for a lawnmower, a tractor, or a farm. And they should be able to get that scale. And, and frankly, you couldn't get that out of, out of WIP. You can't really get that always out of ARC PLC, but you should try to be able to scale that. Every farmer knows how many acres they got, how many acre, uh, bushels of grain they probably have. You should be able to do that math to know how many zeros you're probably working with. Not, not a full application, but at least, you know, the scale, relative scale. The program needed to be wrapped up and fast, which required some intervention during interagency review. We needed to do something quickly to be able to turn something around. Um, and so the secretary is an advocate, and if OMB was pushing back too much, he certainly could go to the White House and others and advocate. Um, and that definitely did happen, and in some cases the president stepped in to be able to say this is something that we really want to be able to happen. CFAP would go on to include multiple rounds of payments to producers, and CCC funding found its way into the bank accounts of farmers and ranchers across the country. The program also included a brainchild of Secretary Purdue, Farmers to Families Food Boxes. Purdue had originally pitched the idea for preordained packages of products through the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. The idea fell flat on Capitol Hill, but now, with farmers having surplus commodities and hungry consumers from coast to coast, the idea was a natural fit. Greg Ibaugh was USDA's Undersecretary for Marketing and Regulatory Programs during the Trump administration. He had also overseen the food purchase program during the MFP era of the previous two years. Now, he was tasked with something similar. In some of those very initial uh, food box programs, uh, the first uh, round, we had a lot of farmers that were doing it themselves and would gather their family around or uh, some of the workers on the farm around to be able to put the, the boxes together and deliver them to, to food banks or to a distribution center that the food bank had identified. Cars lined up for miles and USDA found itself with one of the bright spots of the COVID-19 pandemic. Neighbors were helping neighbors. Agriculture was living up to its feeding the world mantra as much of the world struggled to find a way to feed itself. Purdue traveled the country, taking part in packing the boxes for distribution, then serving in the assembly line that placed the boxes into open trunks like a well-oiled machine. The program was even mentioned during the final night of the Republican National Convention, as Ivanka Trump introduced her father for a speech to accept the GOP presidential nomination on the White House lawn after cities across the country balked at hosting the massive gathering. Within a matter of days, we launched the Farmers to Family Food Box Program, which has now delivered over 100 million meals to, into the hands of American families. In the front row of the audience, seated next to other cabinet members, was Purdue, who, by the way, declined an invitation to participate in this series. Now, the program had its issues. Contractors picked to package and distribute the food ended up having issues packing and distributing food. By nature of what was available, what could be found in the boxes was inconsistent and presented logistical challenges for distributors and recipients. But for IBA, it still stands out as an example of what government can do in a crisis. 
We tried to make sure that the vendors were adhering to the terms of the contracts that were issued to them and delivering on their expectations. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, the problems that we had with the food box program as a percentage of uh, comparison to what happened in other feeding programs was a fraction of uh, the problems that were in other feeding programs. And that food box program was something that was rolled out in several months. And most other feeding programs spent several years uh, trying to put together the rules and regulations and purchasing. Other CCC-funded initiatives have come and gone. But perhaps none have the legacy of the two forms of MFP and the rollout of CFAP during the Trump administration. All told, USDA during the Trump years spent more than $60 billion from the CCC outside the realm of congressional approval. And whether or not those initiatives serve as precedent for future CCC endeavors could depend on how Congress handles a new multi-billion dollar use of the fund. Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack came back to the job in 2021, bringing his eight years of experience from the Obama administration and his CCC battle scars with him. But with the new administration came new priorities and new uses for the CCC. In particular, the Partnerships for Climate Smart Commodities program. The idea was originally pitched as a $1 billion effort to fund pilot projects to help farmers and ranchers develop markets for climate-smart agricultural goods. Vilsack spoke of grand ideas of price premiums and rejuvenated rural communities as he sold the program in some speeches throughout the country. The program eventually tripled in size to more than $3 billion for projects of all sizes. Vilsack announced a handful of the awardees at the 2022 Farm Progress Show, where he crossed paths with Sensky. Basically, he said, Steve, you and uh, Sonny opened the, opened the way there. Many of the nation's farm groups have welcomed the idea, hoping for the private investment it could funnel into farm country if the pilot projects pour fuel on the fire of nascent carbon markets. But on Capitol Hill, the program has received a skeptical reaction among many congressional Republicans. The program led to a back and forth between Vilsack and Kansas Republican Roger Marshall. How can we be confident in negotiating good faith if USDA continues to create programs without congressional approval under CCC discretionary fund use? Well, to be clear, Senator, we, we don't create programs without making sure that they fall within the direction that Congress has provided in creating the CCC. That was during a March 16th hearing of the Senate Ag Committee. Iowa Republican Chuck Grassley got a similar question into the discussion as well. But a few weeks later, Vilsack and House Ag Appropriations Subcommittee Chair Andy Harris got into a much more fiery exchange. If you remember the history of this, it is designed to respond to, to challenges that are faced in agriculture and climate's a challenge. Whether you want to agree to it or not, it is a challenge. And these farm groups understand that. And the reality is, under, under the Commodity Credit Corporation's charter, Mr. We Secretary, have every again, right to do what I, we did. Reclaiming, reclaiming my time. Mr. Secretary, I get it. We put in a loophole that you used. I get it. It's not a loophole. Shame on us. It's Mr. A, Secretary, reclaim, reclaiming my time. That exchange was a prelude to Harris including a provision to limit the Ag Secretary's spending authority through the CCC in a fiscal year 2024 appropriations bill. The Senate bill contains no such provision. 
Vilsack got a boost from a September report from the Government Accountability Office, which determined the Climate Smart Commodities Program was within USDA's CCC authority. From a CCC perspective, that may settle the issue. It was already going to be an uphill battle for Congress to intervene in the Climate Smart Commodities Program when many payments have already been made. Now, the backing of a government watchdog group may turn that difficulty into a near impossibility. The move to restrict CCC spending, however, could come back in the government funding debate or even the upcoming Farm Bill. Congress has shown a vested interest in keeping the account at the ready to assist with emerging challenges, such as a September letter from Senate Ag Committee Chair Debbie Stabenow and Ranking Member John Bozeman, pressing for CCC help to fund trade promotion endeavors. That outreach led to the creation of the Regional Agricultural Promotion Program, the latest new use of USDA's CCC authority. AgriPulse Deep Dive is sponsored by Beringer Ingelheim, the National Crop Insurance Services, the American Bankers Association, and the National Association of Conservation Districts. Tune in next week for our deep dive on animal health emergencies that have cost lives, dollars, and holidays. For AgriPulse Deep Dive, I'm Spencer Chase.